0: Romans twelve seventeen says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Father, we humbly ask for just the the help and the grace of your Holy Spirit to be, Lord, not only alert and attentive to give you our focus so we might hear what your voice wants to say to us personally. But Lord, that we might be just responsive and obedient to the authority of your word and the truth that speaks to us, despite however we may think or feel in given situations. So Lord, we ask, prepare us supernaturally, and we ask that we would experience your spirit and power speaking to our hearts, and that he would interpret and make application to the word of God to each of us this morning. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 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 You may be seated. A group of officers during a war had rented a house in the country in which they were in conflict, and they hired for themselves a a houseboy who was a part of that country that they were at war with. And this houseboy's duties was to cook and to clean for them. And they were younger officers, and so they had a lot of fun playing tricks on this young man that they hired as their houseboy. They would do things like nail his shoes to the floor or Hang the old bucket of water over top of the door frame so that when he went through the whole bucket would pour water on his head and they played all kinds of vicious tricks on him and uh, he always took them however in such beautiful strides. He never got angry or lashed out at them. He never did anything to express his anger or animosity towards them. And finally, after doing this continuously and him just being so humble and never saying a word about it, they actually began to start to feel ashamed of themselves. And they felt so convicted and ashamed, they decided to call him in. And they said, look, we've been doing all these mean things to you again and again uh, and you've always just taken it in such a humble and a, a gracious way and and we we need to apologize for what we've done and we want to let you know that we are through playing those tricks on you and the young boy said you mean no more nail shoes to the floor absolutely not and he said and you mean no more water over the door never again and the young man said okay then no more spit in soup. <laughs> now, I wouldn't say that is the right way to respond to mistreatment. However, we can chuckle because that, quite honestly, is something we could all probably relate to or may have somewhat done in our own little subtle way in our theoretical situation when someone was mistreating us. And today's passage we're going to look at is really about responding Properly. And I emphasize, if you want to title this message, I would say it's, it's not about reacting. That's easy. Responding is something different. And this is about responding properly, number one, when we are wronged or mistreated. That's pretty obvious. And it's also about responding properly in those times when we have to relate to someone that we've experienced some conflict with. Or maybe there's been some resistance or problems among us relationally. Now, the background of Romans 12, as we've been working through it recently, Paul's now addressing the practical aspects of the Christian life. As we talked about, he's now saying to us, this is how the Christian should live after salvation. If you're truly a child of God, you've experienced salvation, you have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you now, and you claim that you are now a follower of Jesus, then the Bible says, well, that should look like something. You should follow Jesus then. You should submit to the Lordship of how he wants you to live. So this is what a Christian in their practice should look like in everyday life as we're studying these remaining chapters together. And now in this section, Paul addresses how we process and handle and respond to wrong treatment that has been done to us and how we, as I said, relate to those that we experience conflict with and battles from time to time. Let's look beginning in verse 17. Right out of the gate, he gets difficult. He says, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So he begins by saying to us, God does, that we should never justify nor permit ourselves to retaliate against those who have wronged us or mistreated us. He says simply, Put, repay no one evil for evil now let's begin by taking notice that the bible assumes that there are going to be occasions and times when evil things are going to be done to you we're sinful people the bible tells us that we live in a fallen world first john 5 says that lies under the sway of the wicked one so this present world system is fallen, it's cursed with sin, and people are, are fallen creatures with sinful natures, and then on top of that, there's an unseen current where the devil himself, who the Bible calls the evil one, is perpetrating and prospering evil treatment among humanity here on this earth. And he causes a lot of evil activity in the world's operation, on national scales, as well as on personal levels in the way that people interact and treat one another that then impacts us at times by being evil treated. Now that to go on to say that some people, let's just be very candid, are particularly evil. Some people in this world, not that we all don't have our weaknesses, but some people are particularly and uniquely evil. They have no regard for God and they have no regard for people. And because of that, they will wrongly treat people and say and do cruel and hurtful things that cause severe damage in other people around them because of their maybe greediness they will do some really cruel hurtful things because of the motivation of greed and and their greed uh, sort of prompting them they can do some really harsh and cruel things some people because of their own selfishness or their sinful cravings and lusts and, and those things can do some really horrific and cruel things to people Perhaps you're even here this morning and some of you here today have been victims of that evil treatment. Maybe you have experienced and become a casualty of someone's evil treatment whether it was maybe just something someone said to you that was very cruel or cutting, maybe you were taken advantage of or, or stabbed in the back in some way vocationally or, or, or just mistreated in the way things were handled in your career or whatever, or maybe you here honestly have experienced the pain of evil treatment from a spouse who's betrayed you, or, or, or maybe even something as a child that your parent did to you and failing you or hurting you or letting you down. There may be some of you here this morning that have experienced even more severe things. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been abused physically. Maybe you've been sexually abused. Maybe you've had something extremely harsh and painful and traumatic that has happened to you. And those are difficult things to process. And sometimes we even experience evil treatment as a direct result of just our commitment to Jesus. Is that not true? We saw last week bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And we talked about how sometimes just your desire to be faithful to Jesus in life, to walk with him and to represent him well and to serve him, or maybe a situation where you choose to do what would honor the Lord and someone else doesn't agree with that or like that, you're going to be hurt and evil treated at times just because of your commitment to Jesus. The question is, is when that happens, How do we respond? God here, notice in verse 17, asks us not to react naturally, but to respond supernaturally. Let me say that again. Not to react naturally, but God asks us to respond supernaturally when you have been victimized. Consider the word picture here, verse 17, even just that word repay. What does the word repay mean? Well, the word repay indicates someone has given you something and therefore you now owe them in return that's what it means when you repay someone maybe even in a loan situation that's the concept the word picture of repay here that you properly give back to someone what they rightly deserve they've given something to you and therefore now you owe them something back in return we use that in banking scenarios well here the idea is from a moral experience returning what is someone's just due there's a sense of obligation to repay them and here the Bible is saying look I know that is how as human beings we're going to automatically interpret ill treatment towards us isn't that exactly how it happens you receive evil treatment someone says something hurtful to you someone treats you in a cruel or evil way and as you receive that evil treatment from them you and I automatically it's natural create a mental human debt within our mind that thinks okay now I owe them something I owe them something back in my verbal response, or certainly I owe them something back as a a debt I need to pay back or repay. We feel we have a moral obligation to return to them what's been given to us, that we owe them retaliation to settle things. Don't people even say things? Let's be honest, like they had it coming to them. See, this is the natural reaction But though that's the natural reaction, that's not the right response. The natural reaction is we're going to want to repay, that's understandable, yet as a child of God, we are called by the grace of God to live differently. To live differently, to live on a higher law, that is the law of love, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that set us free from our old way of living, the power of Christ within us. And God therefore asks us not to react accordingly but to respond supernaturally, to refrain from paying back what it feels like we should or maybe even it seems like we justly should. To resist at times from giving someone what they deserve for what they did for us. The reason is because we're called to honor and to follow and to please Jesus as we represent him. And again, think of Jesus' own life. Jesus was perfectly innocent way more than i can claim jesus never did anything wrong none of us can lay claim to that he never made a mistake he never treated anybody wrong he never did something that was inappropriate he was perfectly innocent and think of the life of jesus he was treated evil multiple times and in many different ways jesus was constantly misunderstood by people So many times we see Jesus being falsely accused many times over. Jesus is abandoned. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is abused verbally, mentally, physically. Jesus is actually publicly shamed and he's even brutally tortured. And yet Peter writing regarding Jesus, 1 Peter 2 says, Christ left us an example in that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return and when he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter then says in the very next chapter, 1 Peter 3.9, Therefore, as his followers, we should not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You know, it's not just that Jesus set us that example and asked us to represent him and emulate him as his follower, but he even made direct requests to us as his followers to exercise supernatural restraint when mistreated. In Matthew 5, verse 38 to 45, Jesus said this, listen. He says, you've heard it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on one cheek... Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks from you and who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, we look at these things and we hear the request of Jesus and we have to be honest to say, that's just not natural. And I say, absolutely. But the Christian life is a supernatural life. See, that's the whole thing. You didn't come to Jesus to stay like you are. Jesus doesn't save us to keep us the same. Jesus saves us to change us, that we live differently, that we live supernaturally by the power of the Spirit of God enabling us. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're ever going to endeavor to try and obey the Lord in those things. But it's possible through the supernatural enablement, and I understand we're in process, we're growing, but there should be occasions where we're beginning to get victory. The Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love and patience and kindness and, hear it, self-control. We often forget that as a part of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, which means that when we want to react naturally, the Holy Spirit, as we're walking the Spirit, can give us self-control where we can refrain and we can resist. And instead of allowing ourselves to repay evil for evil, look how verse 17 goes on. He says, instead of that, proactively have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So instead of reacting by repaying evil to someone in retaliation, instead we should occupy ourselves by being intentional about trying to focus on having regard for doing good in the sight of others. The idea there is taking thought in advance as to what might be a good way to behave in this very unpleasant situation and actually taking into consideration others are always observing. People are always looking at us. Some translations render it this way. Be careful to do what is good in the eyes of everybody in relation to how you respond to mistreatment. Another translation renders it this way. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. See, everything that we do as Christians is in the sight of all men. People are watching. We've all heard that cliche statement, you may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. right? And nobody cares anything about how you act or behave or what you do until the day you publicly slip out, I'm a Christian. Oh, no. all of a sudden now you're the focal point all of a sudden now you deserve higher scrutiny and deeper examination and let me just say i think there's a part of that that's actually true we are supposed to represent jesus jesus did say let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven so let's not get angry there is a part of that that is true it's by god's design But we also know it takes to great severity many times and we find ourselves under the scrutiny of people and everything we do is in the sight of others. And that's probably about at least five times more true when you're going through trouble. And then it's probably about another five times more true when someone has troubled you by treating you wrong. And they want to see how you're going to react. They want to see how you're going to handle it, how you're going to respond to mistreatment. First Thessalonians 5 says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for you as well as for all. See, when we're mistreated, the reason why it's so important, honestly, to obey God's word and respond supernaturally instead of reacting naturally is because those are special occasions When God creates a window of opportunity for testimony and the validity of your commitment to Jesus. And you know what happens. If you do what is honorable and you please the Lord and you respond supernaturally, that can have a powerful impact to really disarm an evil person or an unsaved individual whose heart may be hardened and they are softened and convinced, I can't believe this. I can't believe the way that you responded. I, it just and it softens their heart, and love melts their heart. By the same token, it can have a negative effect if we falter and respond in a way that's disobedient or not pleasing, the Lord. And we just react naturally. What does that do? That creates a huge amount of ammunition of distrust. And I'm not saying it's justified. Look, I, I don't buy into the whole oh, well, Christians this that. Well, yeah. That that, that ain't going to hold up in the day of uh, standing before God and giving reckoning. But I don't want to give people extra ammunition. Do you understand what I'm saying? People fire enough bullets at me and you as Christians as it is, trying to shoot holes in the validity of our commitment to Christ. I don't want to load somebody's gun up. I want to do everything I can to disarm their gun as much as possible. Look how he goes on, verse 18. And I think this is a critical, critical verse. So if you're falling asleep, wake up. If not, pay attention for this verse and you can go sleep for verse 19 through 21, okay? (laughs) Critical. I may camp here a little while. If it is possible, he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So notice here, we are instructed to take initiative, to take initiative to pursue reconciliation and peace in strained relationships, and in severed relationships that once existed but have now been severed in some way. We are called to take initiative. I'm going to share with you an amazing revelation that's going to shock you. You ready for it? This is an amazing revelation. Part of every relationship you will have on this planet with other people who are sinful just like you is going to have and involve occasions where offenses happen. Where conflicts arise, where there are arguments, disagreements, misunderstanding, fights, tensions, struggles, that is part of every human relationship. Every human relationship. And it happens in many different ways and it happens for various causes. Sometimes it happens because somebody truly does something really flat out cruel and they consciously do something really mean. Sometimes it happens because somebody inadvertently does something that they didn't mean to do, but, but they just, they made a mistake. Sometimes it happens because people misunderstand each other. Sometimes it happens for this. There are so many reasons why these things transpire. And then let me go a step further to say this. There are then varying degrees of severity of when those conflicts arise sometimes it's just a little temporary squabble and you kind of can argue and talk it out and, and, and it's done with and it blows over in an hour other times it lasts for a week other times it's it's like just you know severing uh, two Siamese twins that were once completely joined and just ripping them apart and the blood and the gore I mean sometimes it's a very severe severance of a relationship where where maybe a marriage is severed or a family relationship has been severed or a friendship or relationships in the body of Christ just get obliterated and driven apart from one another. And it can happen on all different levels. And as a result, when these things happen, the corresponding emotions are what? Hurt feelings? Understandable. People being angry, people having resentment, bitterness, right? Perhaps even maybe hatred and animosity. These are all normal emotions that come with that. And once peace is disrupted in relationships, or if worse, if a total severance comes in the relationship, then what transpires naturally is neither side or neither person is interested or willing to budge on their position. And they're going to dig in their heels and hold their ground. Nobody's going to initiate a peace effort. There's little or no interest to want to reconcile or to restore. So God, check this out. Knowing us says, well, I'm going to give you a command that counteracts that. In fact, there are many if you read through your Bible. So God says, I know how you're going to react in those situations when they happen. They're unavoidable. So God commands us to do what? Verse 18, to take the step, to make the effort to please him, to obey him. God here says to us, look, as much as it's possible and depends on you, I'm asking you. I'm asking you, live peaceably. He's saying, for no other reason, could you do it for me? If no other reason, since I, since I reconciled the whole world to myself through my son, Jesus Christ, was a little sacrifice involved, God says. It took a little bit on my part to come to complete enemies who spit in my face and beat my son and raised their fists and cursed me. and dis- It took a little effort in the reconciliation process, but, but I went through it. And since I've reconciled the whole world to myself, do you think you could eat a little humble pie just to please me and to try and reconcile and restore if no other reason? Again, my thoughts and feelings, they desire to be angry and stubborn and bitter and to hold on to animosity. However, hear me, God's word says, despite what those feelings and thoughts are, God's word says something different. And God's word, last time I checked, is supposed to be the authority in my life. It's supposed to be the authority over my life. And God here asks us to live peaceably, to live as a peacemaker, to resolve conflict. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Psalm 34, he says there, seek peace, pursue it. It means that we initiate it we go forth and seek after peace. We pursue to resolve conflict. It also means to live peaceably, to live in such a way, I think, where we proactively try and sow and maintain peace in such a way where not only we resolve conflict, but sometimes to live peaceably means trying to avoid conflict, to avoid conflict from even having to arise. James 3.18 says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace. Here the idea is this a person operating in God's wisdom and walking in the Holy Spirit conducts themselves and I think speaks in such a way, in situations where you sense the water levels getting a little hotter, or the tension starting to arise, or somebody's upset or agitated about something, or, or you and, and them as well, or, and, and you, you, could just, you sense in those moments, I can see the tension arising here, I can see. And, and sometimes there's an opportunity as you walk in wisdom to steer things in a prudent direction through what you say or don't say, to diffuse the conflict before the bomb goes off, to to hinder things from digressing further and to avoid unnecessary conflict. See, it's not always going out and resolving conflict once it happens. Proactively, let's be people who try and avoid conflict by the way that we wisely choose to navigate situations and conversations. And I think also to live peaceably involves times, even, let's say this, when we need to be wise and sensitive in situations where other people are at odds and we don't allow ourselves to get pulled into one camp during the war. See, sometimes maybe it has nothing to do with you, but this party and this party's at odds. And the hard part is, is if you have a connection to both parties, is that you don't get pulled into one camp in the midst of the warfare. That's not wise. That's not living peaceable. Instead, we should learn to walk in love and wisdom to stay peaceable with all parties and all men to keep a healthy relationship. So here's why. So you can position yourself in such a place where you can be the most helpful to the parties that are involved to the parties that may be at odds with one another or conflict, again, whether it's a marriage or a family matter or friendships or even in the church in the body of Christ. These are such wonderful, important truths for us to take to heart obediently. Listen, Hebrews 12 says it this way. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which none will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God pay attention, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. See, if we don't uproot little bitterness that begins to transpire, that thing sends down roots and as a result, it blossoms forth a bunch of defilement that defiles 50 relationships. And little by little, you know, bitterness is contagious, man resentment, animosity, all those things can become very contagious and can cause a whole lot of problems. Now, I want you to notice verse 18 that there are two qualifying statements attached to this command to pursue and initiate peace. The two qualifying statements are this, if it is possible, live peaceably with all men. I'm glad God put that in there because sometimes no matter what you do or how hard I try to do what's right, there may not be cooperation, right? There may not necessarily be a willingness by the other party to reconcile or to work through the situation and, and bring back a harmonious, peaceful restoration of the relationship. So God says, look, if it's possible, because there may be times when it honestly is not possible. We say it takes two to tango, right? It takes two people to start a fight. Well, guess what? It also takes two people to stop a fight. It takes two people to stop. So he says, if it's possible, there may be times when you do everything you can and and the other party honestly may not cooperate. And he then says as well, the second qualifying statement, however, don't be quick to try and use that as escape goat and and to, to escape doing your part. But he says, as much as it depends on you, as much as it depends on you, in other words, make sure that you are never guilty for the absence of peace in a relationship. Make sure that you are never guilty for the absence of reconciliation, that you know in good conscience before God that you have done everything you could and should to make endeavors to bring peace into a relationship. You know, it was just great things to hold on to, evaluate your current relationships and keep this close to heart and put it into practice. Now I want to leave you with two verses from Jesus here in relation to verse 18 before we move on that I'm going to actually say, if you have a pen, please write them down. Please write them down. I don't say that often, but please write these down or please memorize these two verses because they are, hear my words, divine obligations that Jesus puts on us in relation to to how we conduct ourselves in relationships and when there's a disharmony or strained or severed relationship. The first is Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. So the Bible puts a divine obligation on the offended party. And Jesus says, when you have been sinned against, you're the victim. When you have been hurt, wronged, sinned against, it is your divine obligation as the one who's, I'm hurt, I've been mistreated, I've been wronged. Jesus says it's your divine obligation to take that hurt and to go to the person and to proactively initiate approaching them and to say, you hurt me you've upset me, you've angered me, you've wronged me, and to go and to tell them privately, between you and them alone, their fault. Now, I think there are many reasons for this, and I could preach a whole other sermon on, I think, the reasons for this. One being this, sometimes people hurt each other and they don't even know they hurt each other. I can't tell you how many times, you know, you have to read the radar, I at times have hurt or wounded my wife by something I said, did or didn't do, and and was clueless. All the guys, please nod your heads with me. Right? Okay, thank you. So I think one of the reasons for that is, look, can you tell me, can you tell me so I have a chance to repent at least? So I have an opportunity to apologize? So Jesus puts this forth because here's another reason why. What happens? When I get hurt or you get offended or somebody sins against you, typically our natural reaction is we dig our heels in and say, I am not speaking to them until they come and apologize. And we try and flip it around and say, until they come and say they're sorry, until they come and admit what they've done, until they repent, I am not talking to them, silent treatment, I'm staying away from them, and I'm going to pull back and retract from them. And listen, Jesus says that solves nothing. The divine obligation is Jesus says, no, that may be how you feel and how the world does things, but we do things different. If you're a follower of me, Jesus says, you are divinely obligated to go to that person and to tell them their fault, irregardless of how they respond. You're obligated to go and communicate that to them, to make them aware of that. That means this, if somebody angers, hurts, or sins against you, your first responsibility is not to go tell someone else. And let me say this, especially in a church, if someone comes to you because someone's hurt, offended, or done something wrong to you, to seek your counsel or to have your listening ear, I'm not saying you shouldn't comfort them, counsel them, but your counsel to them should include you need to go speak to them directly. You need to go talk to them directly, make a meeting, make a phone call and go seek them out and talk to them. If you do not give that counsel, you have sinned in your counsel because that's biblical counsel. That's biblical counsel. You should tell them they are obligated to go tell the person. You should command them and encourage them to do that as a part of obedience to God's word. Second verse is this, Matthew five twenty-three and 24. Jesus says this, Matthew five twenty-three and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember as you're worshiping that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there, Jesus covers the other side. Not when you've been sinned against, but he says, look, if you're worshiping God, you come before the altar to pray, you're being sensitive to the Spirit of God, and in those moments, sometimes the Holy Spirit will quicken your heart and say, you know what? You hurt that person, and you know they're hurting. Or you've offended that person, or or you can tell the way they're responding to you that, that they're offended at you. And, and, and you're not blind to it and you're, you're, you can sense it or sometimes let's say we've done something just clearly negligent it's not that the sensitivity comes by what we read on the radar but sometimes we know we've hurt someone we know we've done something wrong but we were never willing to embrace it and take ownership of it and, and deal with it whatever the scenario again and Jesus says look it would be better to stop worshipping To go seek them out and to reconcile and then come back and worship because something will always be hindered in your worship life until you go and seek to make that relationship right and initiate and at least proactively try to bring resolution and conflict. So no matter how it happens, you're sinned against or you know you've hurt someone else, the divine obligation is still what? Go initiate. Go initiate. Now that takes humility. That takes courage. That takes faith. It takes love, it takes sacrifice, but these are marks of the Christian life, and these are divine obligations, and as they happen in our lives, let us be obedient to the Word of God. There will never be an absence of conflict, Christians, in your marriages, in your families, in your friendships, in the church, never going to be an absence of conflicts, but we resolve conflicts differently. We resolve them differently. And we resolve them in the way that honor and obey Jesus. And we should counsel and encourage one another scripturally. When we see these kind of things transpiring, these are important things that we need to learn how to walk out. Verse 19, he goes on to say, Beloved, and do not avenge yourselves. So now he's talking about out and out revenge, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. So here, verse 19, God instructs us not to take revenge, but what? Instead, to allow God room to work. To allow God room to work. Again, this is hard. It challenges our natural reasoning. The natural reaction and strong temptation is always going to want to be to seek revenge. Whether it's verbal revenge, whether it's... You know, physical revenge. I heard a story years ago of uh, the early days of the the Calvary Chapel movement, when a lot of the you know hippies were getting saved, and uh, you know somebody was talking among themselves about how they, as a brand new Christian, had had slugged this guy. What are you doing? You know, the, well he said, well you know I read that verse, and Jesus said when someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek. So he said the guy punched me in the face, and I got back up, and and I let him punch me again. And he said, but Jesus didn't tell me what to do after that. So I knocked him out. You know, just like, and, you know, and that's just so natural, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's so natural to want to yield revenge in return to what we receive from someone. But Jesus tells us to live differently in love. And, and the Bible says here, do not avenge yourself. Again, the word avenge, when you look at it by definition, is to get satisfaction in return for a wrong by punishing the wrongdoer God saying don't take matters into your own hands or settle the score or get even he says that's not how I want you to respond now we may say because here's our reasoning but wait a minute I mean they deserve justice I'm not being over reaction in this situation they deserve justice what they did was wrong it was illegal it was immoral it was harsh it was horrible truth is maybe they do Deserve justice. And then we go, well, well, then how are they going to get it? If I don't pursue it or I don't render that repayment or revenge against them, how are they going to get what they justly deserve? Well, God answers that in verse 19. He says, Don't avenge yourself. Instead, God says, give place to wrath. In other words, God says, give me room. Because vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. The idea here is give God room for his just and measured and fully righteous way of exercising punishment or wrath where it may be due. The idea is allowing God to have space to be God, to render back to someone what they may righteously deserve because he does a really good job at it in a measured, controlled, and righteous way, and he can take full responsibility. Paul even emphasizes God's word assures us of this. He quotes Deuteronomy 32 here, where the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God is saying, look, that's my role and responsibility. Don't take my job. Vengeance is mine. That's my job, God says. I'm the divine judge over all flesh and God promises and I will repay he's saying I won't let anything go I promise you nothing will slip through the cracks God's saying I'm a just judge I will deal with things and he'll do it properly in the right way at the right time in the right degree and because his word tells us that what we have to do Paul's reminding us here by quoting Deuteronomy 32 is no matter what you're feeling and no matter what I'm thinking and that's hard I need to submit that to the authority of God's word and say you know what God's word has authority over my life so it's hard but I need to by the grace of God and the power of the spirit to submit to those things and not take matters into my own hands so I feel like I can assure myself and that's the hard part we want to assure to make sure justice is going to get this, so we take it into our own hands hey here's probably the most biblical example of this verse being played out David and Saul Remember the story with David and Saul? Saul was trying to kill David. He was always hassling David. He forced him to flee for his life like a refugee in the wilderness to dwell in caves. And on a few occasions, David found himself in a place where he could have taken clear revenge against Saul for his wrongdoing. Remember one occasion David was hiding in a cave with his men and Saul came in to relieve himself, the Bible says. And he went right into the cave where David and his men were hiding and David was there with sword in hand and he could have taken him out right there. But he didn't. He refrained. Another occasion, David and one of his soldiers got into Saul's camp and they were right there. Saul was right there sleeping and David's soldier said, look, this is it, man. God's delivered him right into your hand. This is a divine appointment. Let's kill him. You're supposed to be king anyway. Let's get things going. Look, God's brought him right... And David said, no, that's in God's hands. We'll let God deal with that. We'll let God deal with the wrongdoing. We're not going to take matters into our own hands. It's difficult, very, very difficult, but certainly possible as David demonstrated such and we should emulate the same by the power of the Spirit. Verse 20 says, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, he makes it worse, feed him. No, if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire upon his head. So we're not just called to be a passive doormat and victim. We're actually called to active benevolence. And I think this is the help in the process. This is a reference here to Proverbs 25, where there it says, if your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, it will be totally natural if you saw your enemy, and you're always going to have enemies. Jesus had enemies. It'd be natural if you saw your enemy suffering and struggling to just ignore his situation and plight, or worse, maybe even to rejoice in it and to enjoy that they're hungry or they're suffering. But the Bible teaches instead we should show love and kindness in practical ways. He says if your enemy is hungry or thirsty, God says be compassionate to him. Show him love demonstrate something that will shock them. Why? Because that's reflective of how God treats his enemies. Romans 5, eight God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were enemies, God reconciled us. And this is reflective of how God treats people and we're his followers. Now, what does he mean here when he says, if you do this, show active benevolence to your enemies what does he mean when he says, then then you'll heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward us? Some of you read that and went, yeah, heaping coals of fire on his head. That sounds good to me. <laughs> what, is God going to rain down brimstone? There you go. With your Big Mac, there's a few coals of fire on your head, you know? I mean, wh- what does that mean? Well, commentators dispute here. I don't think there's any certainty. Some believe it's a reference to an ancient practice where sometimes they would force someone in a in a camp or village to carry around a pan of coals on their head that had a very foul odor, whatever was put in there, to shame themselves publicly to acknowledge their error as they became a a stench in the nostrils of everyone around them. And it was a public way of shaming themselves for their error. And some believe that what this is a reference to is that when you treat somebody kindly, who has treated you cruelly, you're going to shame them into humility. And they're going to be embarrassed that you are repaying their cruelty with love and kindness. And it may shame them and humble them. Others think it's a reference to how when a person's fire would go out on that day, and fire was critical. The only way you could get your fire restarted is if someone graciously took a few coals from their fire, And they carried everything on their heads, you know, many times in the ancient day. And they brought a clay pan over to your house, carrying the coals of fire. And they gave some to you to get you out of the trouble that you were in and help reignite your fire. Again, it was a a picture of an act of kindness that would cause a person to be humbled. And at the same time, it, it, it would please God because you showed benevolence and kindness. I'll tell you, these are great verses and maybe wise counsel as we live among people that we're odds with. Consider trying this in your household. Consider trying this when there's tension or animosity and and returning for that, kindness, cruelty, and then kindness in return, cruelty, and then kindness in return. Because I'll tell you something, love is a powerful thing. Love is a powerful thing. Love softens more hearts then any strong-armed, I'm going to put you in your place. Love's a powerful thing. And here the Bible calls us to that and says that God will reward us regardless of the response. Well, look how he finishes verse 21. He says, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is the summation, basically, the summation statement of everything we've just read. When you're ill-treated, you can either be overcome or you can overcome that ill treatment. When wrong things happen, we have no control over what happens to us. Right? When was the last time you had control over mean things being done to you, or cruel treatment, or something hurtful happening? We have no control over how we're treated by others, but we have complete control over our response once we've been wrongly treated. We have complete control over that and we have accountability and we must decide to overcome because if we don't decide to overcome, the Bible saying it's going to overcome you. And it will overcome you in a way whereby it will prompt or draw you into sinful actions and reactions. That's why he says don't be overcome by evil treatment if we allow ourselves to be conquered and defeated by evil treatment it will draw us into sin and call us to respond in a way that just displeases the Lord and maybe some of you here this morning are under this kind of pressure currently maybe you're dealing with some wrong treatment and there's a strong temptation and God's asking and warning you saying don't give in don't give in Don't let it overcome you. That's only going to lead to greater damage and problems and ultimate regrets. Instead, God commands that we conquer and defeat evil by intentionally and responsibly doing what's good. He says, instead, here's how you preoccupy yourself when you're tempted to want to respond wrongly in return. He says, preoccupy yourself instead by realizing I'm not just acting or asking for passive resistance. God I'm not saying just... Please give passive non-resistance. God's saying, I'm asking you for active benevolence. Active benevolence. And why? Because when you endeavor and I endeavor to express good to someone who's done us wrong, it disarms them and makes them struggle with continuing with the wrong. And it also helps us to let go of it rather than to hold on to it. With a deep grudge. Listen to this story. I think it's a great conclusion to what we've been talking about. The story of a boy who was in an army and he was a Christian and had formed the habit of praying beside his bed before he went to sleep. He kept up this practice even in the army and became an object of mockery and ridicule to the entire barracks. One night he knelt down to pray after a long and weary march and as he was praying, one of his tormentors took off his muddy boots and threw them at the boy one at a time, hitting him on each side of his head. The Christian said absolutely nothing about it, just took the boots, put them beside his bed, and continued praying. But the next morning when the other man woke up, he found those same boots sitting beside his bed all shined and polished. It so broke his heart that he came to the boy and asked for his forgiveness. And not only that, after a time... He then became a Christian himself.